Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here, as always, with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. You know, our audience is, is growing and is engaged and enthused, and we're so happy about that. And last week, we talked about a little uh, thank you that we were offering to our, our audience in terms of uh, book plates. Um, we recommended that uh, our audience get and read one of Professor Amara's books, specifically The Words That Made Us, but basically any book, but The Words That Made Us is our top choice right now. And uh, that if you notified us either through the website, akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two, where you can find our podcast, um, or uh, with a direct email to andy at akilamar.com, that we will send you a book plate, book plate inscribed with Professor Amar's signature and um, whatever else you wanted him to say within reason. We had a, a very, very robust response to that. Thank you. And I just want to, as I did individually with some of our uh, listeners, uh, I replied to them specifically and said, yes, we're doing this. Uh, please hold on because we're waiting to get the book plates back from the printer. So I now say that to all of you. And those of you that... Uh, sent in something through the website. We don't have your email address when, when you do that, so there was no way to respond to you directly. Um, so, yes, uh, please uh, hold on, but we will we will get that out to you, and we're, we're very gratified from the response on that. And it's not really a limited-time offer. Uh, at least it isn't yet, so it's still open. So if you haven't uh, replied, you feel free, or if you're a new listener, again, if, you, if you're interested, Professor Marr will send you a special America's Constitution book plate uh, autograph. Just either fill out the question or uh, send an email to andy at akilamar.com. So that's one thing. Secondly, we've been talking about Everscholar, and I'm happy to let you all know that Everscholar is, has begun a series of announcements uh, of new programs um, the first one just went up on the website two days ago, and it's called the Modern Axial Age. That's a program that's going to take place at the uh, in October in New York City at the University Club. And it's another in a series of programs that we've had about China. Um, but this is a very interesting one because it, it isn't China alone. It seeks to connect China, Europe, and America at a very important moment in the uh, early, uh, relatively early part of the 20th century, at a time after World War I, when China had a revolution, when empires fell all over Europe and Asia, when the United States was apparently ascendant, globalization of a, of a new sort. And the contention of the course is that at that moment, um, there was a globalized discussion in literature, in art, in politics, um, and that that had profound effects that we still see today. And, of course, you just have to look at the headlines to see how relevant that discussion is. So there's a lot more to know about this, but check out everscholar.org for information about that program. Uh, we have not opened registration yet. It will open this week. So take a look at that and... Uh, 
I think many of you will be very intrigued. This is the the past courses we've had in this series have all been been filled and and people come back and I'm sure some of them will want to come back for this one as well. So uh, it'll fill quickly. So don't wait. Okay. So the big development this year, as far as this podcast is concerned, has been the identification of the court as an originalist court. And of course, Professor Amar has represented himself for a long time as an originalist. So one would think that there'd be a certain coherence there, or at least that he would have particular value to add to all of us in understanding where is the court, what does this mean, and how, do, how can we approach uh, the issues that face the court going forward? Okay. In order to do that, we need to have an understanding of originalism. Akhil, you've said in the past that there, there are different flavors of originalism, but that would seem to be a problem because if there are different flavors, first of all, what flavor is the court? Um, what flavor should it be? And isn't this sort of a, uh, a delegitimization of originalism that you can just have a particular flavor? Um, if it's actually a correct way of looking at the Constitution, then it shouldn't really come in, uh, in it shouldn't do a Baskin-Robbins imitation. Um, so I think we need to have an understanding of, of what you believe originalism is and should be, um, how it's properly done, and why it's a legitimate way of looking at the Constitution. So we need to provide our audience with a, a deeper more fundamental understanding of it. Now, you've described yourself in the past as a liberal originalist. And I, I want to ask you to clarify that term because that, again, goes to this question of flavors. If you were a liberal originalist and someone else were a conservative originalist, then that would imply you know, two different types of, of originalism. And how can that lead to a correct result uh, in in the jurisprudential context, you know, in, in, uh, if there's a right answer, then we need to get to it. And a liberal originalist will get it to a different answer than a conservative one. So is that what you mean when you describe yourself as a liberal originalist, that that's a flavor? Or do you mean that you are a liberal who is an originalist? Great set of questions. I believe in correct originalism. I believe my style of originalism is actually the better style and it's different than Scalia's in ways that we'll talk about today that you'll see exemplified. It's different than Bork's or Justice Thomas's or Justice Alito's or Gorsuch's uh, probably for that matter. So take a step back. Here are some things I am saying. One, originalism doesn't always or even ordinarily lead to more conservative results. It sometimes does, it sometimes doesn't. And so I highlight that fact that originalism is not coextensive with conservatism. I'm an originalist, and in fact, I think originalism properly done often, not always, but often leads to liberal outcomes. Honestly done, properly done. Um, so... I, I emphasize that I'm a liberal just because lots of folks out there think originalism and conservatism are the same thing, and they're not. And um, as we've talked about earlier in this podcast, the preeminent originalist um, of the last century was a liberal, Hugo Lafayette Black. He was the driving force of the Warren Court. And there are others of that genre. Second, as a matter of method, 
my method emphasizes not just the the original originalism, so to speak, the founding moment, but it pays particular emphasis on subsequent constitutional amendments that often explicitly, but also often implicitly um, modify the earlier constitutional text. And many conservative originalists, just in general, one of the things that makes their originalism kind of methodologically more conservative and, in my view, incorrect, because mine, I think, is the right version of originalism, is they don't lavish the same kind of attention on the amendments, especially the Civil War amendments and the 20th century amendments, the income tax amendment or the um, the 1960s amendments. Um, And these later amendments talk about, for example, the right to vote again and again and again. Conservative originalists don't pay enough attention to the understanding of those later amendments, which are designed to make amends for some of the flaws of the original document. And those amendments, to repeat, not only explicitly but implicitly modify the proper interpretation of earlier texts. And so that's identifying a kind of categorical methodological difference between certain kinds of originalists, like myself, liberal originalists. We pay more attention to the Reconstruction and the 20th century amendments than do conservative amendments. And um, it's and I said flavors maybe that was um, in, in earlier conversations that was maybe, you know, very generous. Just to be clear, I think our version is the correct version. And related, ours is holistic and purposive and not narrow and literalistic the way, let's say, Antonin Scalia's originalism at its worst sometimes operated. So for our audience, we're going to undertake a project here over the next few episodes, and that's to articulate or elaborate on originalism. We're going to do that through a familiar method to lawyers and law students, which is to look at cases and controversies. Um, I'm going to go back to the, as befits an originalist analysis, to the early days of the Republic and then move forward. And as we do this, audience, you should pay attention to, and we will try to pay attention to a couple of large themes. One is we're going to look at major cases and controversies and see what an originalist analysis of that case or controversy properly done is. Um, So as we do that, you should look for how this demonstrates the method of originalism. Now, it can't really be reduced, I would say, to a flowchart or to a, a bunch of bullet points. But nevertheless, you'll see a consistency of method uh, and one which you yourself can use to analyze the cases going forward or, uh, and going backward and to see, okay, what, what does an originalist analysis say about this case? So after you've listened to this, um, I think you'll have this sense of, okay, this is how uh, an originalist would approach this case and this is you know, the result that it would lead to. So that's one thing. The second thing is we have to acknowledge that there are other schools of thought, pragmatism and other living constitutionalism, so forth, other theories of how one might approach uh, the Constitution. And we need to recognize that these other, that people that advocate for these other theories have certain critiques of originalism. So what we're going to do now is we're going to elaborate what some of those critiques have been. And Professor Marr will give you a quick way to think about how originalism might respond to these critiques. But then as we go through the cases and controversies, you should see how 
these answer the critiques or perhaps in your view audience fail to answer the critiques and if you feel that we that we're failing to answer them let us know let us know by a question uh, an email and so forth and to the extent that we you know look we'll look at them all and to the extent that they say something that we think we you're right we haven't addressed that or then we'll attempt to address it or perhaps you know admit that we're that you know, we're wrong in this sense that originalism is inadequate, you know, in this, in this sense. Okay, so let's go through the, uh, some of the critiques that we're aware of, uh, of originalism. So first of all, um, we hear frequently, it's said that, that originalism is indeterminate, soft, doesn't come up with a, with a definitive answer. It's true to a certain point, law is not mechanical. Uh, precedents don't apply themselves. People disagree about them, uh, what their meaning. You mentioned pragmatism. Various pragmatists don't always agree. So to some extent, that's going to just be built into the nature of law. It's not actually some mechanistic process. Um, that said, there will often be, I think, um, a, a clearly better originalist answer to lots of genuinely important constitutional questions. And the proof will be in the pudding. You'll just have to hear me do it again and again and again and persuade you that on a given issue, um, one answer is actually net-net better than the uh, another, even though it's not purely mechanical and algorithmic. And as we go through the cases, if if indeed our analysis comes up again and again with what you, the audience, can agree is the right answer. That provides some evidence um, that the method is working. Now, of course, you could say we, you know, we're looking backwards, um, so we already know the answer. So that that isn't all that helpful. But I would also ask you, audience, to recall that over the last year and a half, we've also made some prospective predictions um, using an originalist method, which have, um, in many cases, I would say, been vindicated. Um, but it's an ongoing process, uh, to be sure. Okay, so the second uh, critique I want to mention is that many people say that it's, and of course we've alluded to this already, that it's ideological. That if you're conservative, you're going to come up with a conservative result. If you're liberal, you're going to come up with a liberal result. The Warren Court was liberal, and case after case had liberal results, even though they ostensibly were using an originalist analysis, um, and vice versa with the current court. And that can be true among pragmatists, again, or precedent people, liberal precedent people versus conservative precedent people. As you will see, originalism, at least as I do it, does not consistently generate conservative results, but sometimes it does. Originalism doesn't consistently and overwhelmingly lead to conservative results, but yes, sometimes the conservatives win under originalism properly understood, and sometimes the liberals win. To repeat, people can cheat with any method, with the method of pragmatism, with the method of doctrinal precedent following a case analysis. And in fact, in modern times, at least, there really haven't uh, ever been consistently five originalists on the court at any given moment. So, yeah, the Warren Court was liberal and uh, the modern court isn't. Um, you can't blame originalism for all of that. Now, this next critique, I think, goes to a perhaps a misunderstanding of what we're representing as originalism. But many people say, well, okay, you're talking about, you know, uh, the, the original Constitution, the original amendments, but, you know, X, 
doesn't appear in the Constitution. Uh, X word doesn't appear in the Constitution. So therefore, how can you say that this is the originalist analysis of it? Yes, originalism is not to be conflated with literalism or narrow textualism, originalism, or at least a Mars version of originalism, a Marcus Constitution's version of originalism, is holistic, purposive, intergenerational, um, often attentive to the big idea, the big picture, whether or not there's a specific word in the Constitution that always clinches the point. Sometimes there will be, sometimes not so much, but it's still the Constitution as a whole, as understood by the people who ratify it, that's doing the work in the analysis. Um, another critique is that sometimes in originalist analysis, we read that that someone is quoting, you know, ex-founder or, or you know, James Wilson or James Madison or whatever, but that when we actually look back, we see that the founders themselves disagreed on a particular point. Um, or, uh, you know, or other notables along the way, justices, you know, and so forth. So how is it that you can, you can always cherry pick, you know, what this person said or that person said and find someone that agrees with the point of view you're hoping to achieve? So if they themselves disagreed, how is it that we can use, you know, what they said as authoritative? They did often disagree. That's a big theme of my recent book, The Words That Made Us. Um, that said, um, when, we, when we focus on the text and the Constitution structure as a whole and the big picture, often we will see that one side was pretty clearly right. And when we do it again and again and again, we will often see interesting patterns about which framers were more consistently right on which issues. And it's not always the case that any one founder is always right, but it turns out, as we'll see, that some founders were actually better on some issues and other founders were actually better on, on other issues. And we're not just counting noses here, you see. That's not what originalism is about. It's ultimately about what the Constitution means, and we start with the text and the, the structure of the document as a whole and its larger animating purposes. But yes, we do pay attention to what leading figures think and weigh their arguments. And some folks are more authoritative than others. That's true in the cases, too. That's why we talk about Marshall C.J. or Hugo Black has more credibility as a, as a jurist than, frankly, Harry Blackman. So there you have it. Another critique is that the, the founding itself uh, is tainted, tainted by slavery, tainted, you know, in, in a variety of ways. Um, and that makes it an inappropriate foundation for today's jurisprudence. Uh, if you look in history, you'll see taints everywhere. You'll see it in cases, too, like uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, um, for example. Um, but um, my brand of originalism does pay particular attention to the later amendments, many of which actually were designed to make amends for some of the founding taints. And this is related, but, ne but nevertheless, I, I feel it deserves a separate question. Uh, mentioned as a critique, which is the notion that the project, the constitutional project, is inattentive uh, to modernity, to, to so say that the founders couldn't possibly have perceived, you know, the developments that have taken place. And on some issues they couldn't, and yet, and yet, and yet, 
presidents today still do things that are very similar in all sorts of ways to what George Washington did as president. And if we're looking at, and and modernity may not help us because actually we're not going to get that much guidance. If you're a president, you may not get that much guidance from precedents because it may be an issue, for example, that the cases don't speak to because it it doesn't get litigated. It's actually a a presidential issue. And you're not going to get very much guidance if you look at the president of France um, or the prime minister of Britain or New Zealand or Israel or Canada because they have different systems, actually, parliamentary and sometimes unwritten. But I'm going to try to show you today that presence of the United States actually can get a lot of guidance on certain issues from, for example, what George Washington did, because the presidency has a lot of continuity, and so does the Senate and the House of Representatives. Now, not perfectly, and if the Constitution is really inattentive to modern needs, of course, we can amend it. And speaking of amendments, we're going to actually need to focus, as I said before, not just on the founding understandings, but subsequent constitutional developments as embedded and coded in constitutional amendments post-founding pre-2020, too. Okay, so those are um, some specific statements about you know what, what the answers to these critiques are, but really they're more statements of how you will see as we do the analysis that this point that that Akil made is valid. So, for example, he says, "Okay, you're going to be able to see that um, presidents do a lot of the things that presidents have always done, um, and therefore you can understand presidential power by looking at the original design of the Constitution, Article Two, and and so forth." So. Um, that's a claim, um, and now we'll have to establish the, cl- the validity of the claim um, through this process of looking at these different cases. So we're going to start today with just a few. Um, this will go on for a, a few episodes, um, and if there are big developments in the interim, you know, we may have half an episode of this and half an episode of what's going on. We still haven't talked about, for example, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the West Virginia versus EPA case, but you'll find that that case will find its way neatly into our analysis as we go along. Um, So we're not neglecting what's going on, but frankly, in order to um, understand what's going on, we need to go through this process with you. Okay, so so today we're going to start with, as I said, a few, and we'll go in great depth. And then as we go through more of these, I think sometimes we'll say, well, we already talked about this in this other case, and you understand this. So things will, I think the pace will pick up over time. Okay, so let's start with um, the early Constitution, um, which is uh, written and ratified in the 1780s. And as the 1780s come to a close, we have uh, what's called the Decision of 1789. And you consider that a very important constitutional moment. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it was, and then let's go through an originalist analysis. and see what this says about method and how it addresses critiques. So, um, 1789. Now, the Constitution is ratified in 1788. So already, from a certain kind of originalist perspective, hmm, what are you talking about? I thought all the meaning was fixed at the point of ratification. 
And there are originalists who have emphasized this fixity thesis. We're going to complicate a little bit because we're not going to run away from the hard method issues. What is the decision of 1789? It's the label we now give to a series of statutory enactments by the first Congress led by James Madison in the House of Representatives that recognized that the president has the absolute right to fire cabinet officers at will. Unilaterally, he doesn't need to get the Senate's say-so. He doesn't need to get anyone's permission. And today, this decision of 1799, at least as applied to top cabinet officers, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, the Secretary of the Treasury, it's 9-0 in the United States Supreme Court that that the president could fire these people at will. Republicans accept this. Democrats accept this in all branches of government. The interesting thing is, ooh, the text of the Constitution isn't entirely unambiguous on this point. Uh, The history of 1787-88 is actually complicated, so we're going to get into it in just a minute. But just so, again, we're clear on what we're talking about. Joe Biden on day one was not stuck with Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State. He wasn't stuck with Donald Trump's attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen. If Trump had sacked Jeffrey Rosen, and he could have under the decision of 1789, Biden wouldn't have been stuck with, God forbid, Jeffrey Clark. He's not stuck with Steve Mnuchin at at Treasury. So I said two points already. A president can dismiss at will cabin officers from the previous administration, And he can also dismiss at will people that he's put in that he's no longer pleased with. And where does that come from? Let's start with the Constitution's text. The Constitution's text says two relevant things. This is Article 2. One, the executive power of the United States shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. Okay. And... Um, Now, um, a little bit later on, um, it talks about various presidential powers, and one power is that the the president shall have the power um, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, he shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls. Okay? So, oh, and maybe one other provision I just might quickly add here. The president shall have the power to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all the officers of the United States. The Constitution is pretty clear that in order to appoint people, the president needs the advice and consent of the Senate. And formally, it's advisory because even if the Senate has approved, the president unilaterally can decide to grant a commission or not. So that's why technically it's advisory. So appointments are clear. What about disappointments, so to speak? What about removals? Well, the text isn't entirely unambiguous on this. We're being honest. Okay, originalism isn't mechanical and determinate. Okay, Okay, well, what about the ratification? history. Well, people debated the Constitution of over a year and lots of different issues. 
The Federalist Papers loom particularly large in that national discourse. Here's what Alexander Hamilton writes in the Federalist number 77. He writes some of the main Federalist Papers about the executive branch, and here's what he says. The consent of the Senate would be necessary to displace as well as to appoint. So he says, oh, when the president's firing, he's going to need to get the Senate's approval, just like when he's hiring. Oh, that doesn't look so good for the decision of 1789, you see. Wait a minute, the text isn't clear entirely. And Hamilton took a contrary position when selling the document to the American people. So, Akhil, if you're a believer in the decision of 1789, what the heck kind of originalism is that? See, I'm, I'm trying to be open and honest with the audience about the, the, the real methodological issues. If originalism is about fixing the meaning of the Constitution at the moment of ratification, anything that happens after ratification, from one point of view, doesn't count. That's not my brand of originalism. Okay. So let me take a big step back and tell you what I think the big picture is and then the specific ways of reading the Constitution that actually fit with that big picture. Originalism well done, Amar style, is both panoramic and precise. It'll start with a big idea about what the American people actually really did agree on and, and the implications of that, and then they'll try to say, oh, and here's the text of the Constitution that at least permits this reading, maybe even on close, close inspection, supports it moderately or perhaps even strongly. Here's the big, the, the most important thing to understand. There are some ambiguities in Article 2. Article 2 is actually of the three articles, Article 1 about the legislature, Article 3 about the judiciary, the loosest why and what, what's that all about? The Constitution, Akhil Amar argues, this is a, a central theme of the words that made this, was designed, in effect, by and for George Washington. Full stop. That's the key, key fact. People voted for the Constitution because George Washington supported it. The, the key feature of the Constitution that makes it different than state constitutions is actually our Two. In all sorts of other respects, it looks a lot like state constitutions that are already on the books in 1787-88. It's written, so are state constitutions. It's got a bicameral legislature, so do all this, the, the state constitutions that emerge from the American Revolution, except Pennsylvania and Georgia. It's got a tripartite structure of a separate executive and judiciary fine, so do state constitutions. In lots of respects, it's just a continental version of the state constitution, but here's the big difference. Its executive branch is infinitely more powerful than any state governor. It's a four-year term of office, infinitely renewable, no term limits, electable independently of the legislature. In eight of the states at the time, actually, the, the legislatures pick the governor, kind of prime minister style. The, this guy's going to have a veto pen. Only Massachusetts has a um, governor has a veto pen in his own hand. Um, in New York, it's uh, the, the only other veto provision is a kind of a council with the, the president with judges, a pardon pen. He's going to control a continental army navy. It's an enormously powerful presidency. Long term, no state has a four-year term of office infinitely re-eligible. 
It's designed for George Washington. He's the, he presides at Philadelphia. That's why Philadelphia Convention has credibility. In the ratification period, people vote for it because Washington is vouching for it. They know he's going to be the first president. He's unanimously elected the first president. He's unanimously re-elected the first president. That is every elector votes for George Washington. Constitution is designed for George Washington. They wouldn't have written it the same way for anyone else. So that's the first big point. And, and they do that for national security reasons. They trust him in a whole bunch of ways. He's, he's not going to abuse power. He had a continental army at his disposal, the only really important army at the continent, on the continent, after Yorktown. And he doesn't try to make himself king or emperor or czar or lord protector. He disbands the army and, and retires. And then needs to be, you know, nudged, begged to leave retirement because his country needs him again a few years later. Okay. That's the key fact. It's an originalist fact of a certain sort. You need to understand history. The text isn't going to tell you quite all that. You need to understand background stuff. It's not about dictionaries. Antonin Scalia aren't going to tell you any of that stuff, and you just played with dictionaries all the time. That's not a Mars version of originalism. It's actually understanding what people are doing and why. They are creating a massively strong executive for George Washington. That's the big picture fact. Now, I need to tell you one other fact. I told you what Alexander Hamilton thinks, at least early on. He's going to change his mind. He wants to be Treasury Secretary, and if he's going to be Treasury Secretary, he's going to need to understand that he answers to the president, the president alone, who can file. So actually, Hamilton later on will pivot, but it's after the ratification. You see that he changes his mind when he realizes he's made a mistake. He's actually misinterpreted the document. That was just a goof. Oops. We do that all the time in the podcast, and Andy tends to edit these things out. Here's the key question. Once you understand that, okay, which, given there's some ambiguity here, and I'm going to go through the text in a minute, the, the question is, should I read that first sentence of Article 2 to provide for unilateral removal power? It says the Senate's involved in appointments. It doesn't say the Senate's involved in removals. Um, and there's at least a textually plausible argument that the executive power of the United States, which is vested in the president, includes the power to basically supervise and monitor underlings who are executing the law and to fire them if you think that they are incompetent or if for any reason you've lost confidence in them. So the question is, how narrowly or broadly do we read this sentence? It's the first sentence of Article 2. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. Do we read that as implicitly including uh, a kind of removal at will power, at least for the Secretary of State, the Secretary of, uh, they called it war back then, Defense, um, Secretary of the Treasury, and uh, Attorney General. Okay. Now, there are four possible interpretations of the Constitution. Oh, it's not mechanical or determined. Um, it, there, there are choices to be made. Here's one. It's what Hamilton says. Well, the Senate has to agree to make an appointment, so they have to agree for every removal. But the text doesn't say that. It's, it talks about appointments and not removal. And when you think about it structurally, that doesn't make a lot of sense because the Senate is going to, you know, be on leave a lot of times. Suppose you actually find someone with their hand in the till. You've got to fire them immediately. They can't be trusted. Two words, Benedict Arnold. 
you discover actually that someone is misbehaving. And George Washington has experience, you see, with Benedict Arnold, and the Senate isn't around. Are you going to say you, you, you can't cashier the guy immediately? Have to wait. It's going to take weeks to pull the Senate back to office. It doesn't make uh, back into D.C. or into the national capital. It's not D.C. yet. It doesn't make structural sense. Okay, but that's one reading. And now this is constitutional holism, you see, and purposivism. Second reading. Oh, you just can't fire anyone at any time. Doesn't make provision for removal. It doesn't say so. It doesn't say you can fire, so you can't fire. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because if someone is completely corrupt or incompetent, of course you got to throw them out. How is the American project going to work if people who are incompetent or corrupt you know, can't be removed? It would make everyone, in effect, have life tenure when the Constitution's text only gives... Um, tenure for good behavior to the judiciary it would make everyone in the executive branch have life tenure. So that doesn't make sense. Now we're left with actually two plausible interpretations. And these were all debated, you see, in the first Congress. One is Congress should decide by statute. It can decide, you know, how to create offices and structure their removal uh, procedures. There's some plausibility for that. There really is. I'm being candid. Candid. But the other is, no, the president, at least for the top positions, especially those top positions are connected to powers that are personally given to him over the Army and Navy. He's commander-in-chief, so that, that's secretary of war. Over foreign affairs, because he receives and sends ambassadors, so that's the secretary of state. Over law enforcement, because he's the pardoner-in-chief. At least for those, you know, where he has personal powers elsewhere in Article 2. I've just made some textual arguments, you see, about some of those other provisions of Article 2. He should be allowed to, to fire um, at will anyone in whom he's lost confidence. Now, that's the position that eventually prevails. And for me, here's the key first fact. This is George Washington's own view of the matter. Constitution was designed for him. Article 2 was designed for him. And this is his view. Here's what he says. And this is actually from my book, The Words That Made Us, which I haven't plugged in the last 30 seconds. Um, In 1789, No one had thought more about presidential power than had Washington himself. And this position was his position. Quote, the impossibility that one man should be able to perform all the great business of the state, I take to have been the reason for instituting the great departments, the cabinet departments in effect, and appointing officers therein to assist the supreme magistrate straight, that is the president, in discharging the duties of his trust. So he's saying, you put me in charge of the branch, I'm accountable to the American people, I've got to have control over my underlings, just as I do in my plantation. I have control over the overseers and, and the waiters at my, at, my, at my dinner table and the butlers. Okay, That's his position. Now you might say, gee, Washington is going to be held accountable for his branch if that's the big structural idea, and that means he has to be able to sack people at will, fire them. Why doesn't he have the power just to hire them at will? Because the Constitution says otherwise. It says the Senate actually plays a role. And I think the best answer is that there's an anti-nepotism principle, an anti-corruption principle that's also at work. You don't want a president unilaterally to be able to, frankly, hire his son or son-in-law. So you want the Senate to actually vet these people, but that issue doesn't really quite apply symmetrically when we're talking about sacking people who have proved to be corrupt. In fact, the anti-corruption idea explains both, really, why you'd want the Senate involved in hiring, but 
also why you don't necessarily need the Senate involved in firing. And if the corruption manifests itself at a time when the Senate isn't in session, oh, you want that person out pronto. On the need for a Senate confirmation process to guard against nepotism, here's actually a paragraph from my 2005 book, America's Constitution, a biography. Heightened scrutiny was also appropriate in appointments implicating, quote, family connection, as Hamilton Publius explained in the Federalist Number 76. Although Washington never nominated even distant relatives, John Adams raised Republican eyebrows when he proposed John Quincy as minister to Prussia. Superbly qualified for the position, young Adams eventually won Senate approval. When, Adam, when President Adams later nominated his son-in-law, Gerald Kushner, oh, excuse me, uh, William Stephen Smith, to various posts, senators closely reviewed the matter, rejecting Smith for one position and approving him for others. So here we see kind of originalism at work. Of course, we have the text, and the text is absolutely emphatic. The Senate plays a role in appointments, but not from a strict textual point of view, and removals, and for sensible reasons. But we also now know one of the core reasons about why the Senate plays an important role in impeachment. Appointments, not impeachments, I think. Yes, I misspoke. Thanks, Andy. It's about family connection. It's about nepotism. And why do we know that? We know that because of Hamilton in the Federalist number 76. Now, this is originalism. I'm not saying that Hamilton is always infallible. And in fact, in the Federal 77, as we've talked about, he, he gets it wrong on the removal issue. But he does help us see a core purpose of the Senate's role in the appointment process, which is preventing corruption. And once you understand that core purpose, it actually argues for no Senate role in removal quite, because corruption might manifest itself at a time when it isn't in session, and it doesn't make structural sense to require the president to summon everyone from the four winds, especially in the founding era, just because he's detected corruption what makes uh, in, in some mid-level official. What makes sense is for him to sack the, the person immediately, and then he'll have to answer for that when this uh, House and Senate come back in. And in fact, there's going to be an oversight process, presumably. I once had a discussion with one of my former students. He's a thoughtful person. He um, has an article actually taking a different position on the, uh, this issue. And I, I just asked him, you know, what was George Washington's position on this? And he didn't know the answer. I said, you're not even asking the right question. This purported to be an originalist analysis. It's in the Stanford Law Review. And I said, you're not even seeing the big thing. Because his name is Jed Sugarman. And I said, Jed, if you're right, George Washington's wrong. If George Washington is right, you're wrong. For me, it's not a close question, if that's my choice. But it's not just George Washington. He gets Hamilton to change his mind. Remember, Hamilton, in the end, um, serves under Washington as Treasury Secretary, knowing that Washington can cashier him at will. And he gets the first Congress to pass a statute that doesn't actually, when you read the statute carefully, doesn't purport to give the president this removal power at will, but to recognize the pre-existing constitutional power of the present, and I want to read you what James Madison says, and, and, and then I have kind of begun to make the originalist argument. There are going to be some complexities here, but let me read you what Madison says in the first Congress. 
His reasons are important. It is evidently the intention of the Constitution that the first magistrate, that is the president, should be responsible for the executive department. Like, he's the person you hold accountable. You know, that would be Joe Biden today. If you don't like how things are going, you know, in the, uh, in, in the executive branch, you know, the buck stops with him. That's the Harry Truman idea. That's a structural idea. It vests power, you see, in the president. Okay. And indeed, that's, Ham- that's um, Madison's next sentence. The Constitution affirms that the executive power shall be vested in the president. Are there exceptions to this proposition? Yes, there are. The Constitution says that in appointing to office, the Senate shall be associated with the president. That's the advice and consent power. Have we a right, we in the Congress, to extend this exception? I believe not. If the Constitution has invested all executive power in the president, the legislature has no right to diminish or modify his executive authority. Okay, so the sentence involved in appointments, but no further than that. Back to Madison. The question now resolves itself into this. Is the power of displacing, that is removing, an executive power? I conceive that if any power whatsoever is in its nature executive, it's the power of appointing, overseeing, and controlling those who execute the laws. And I think, gee, that's a beautiful statement of the, the text of the matter. And it's not the only way to read the text, but it's a very sensible way of reading the text. And it fits with the big structural idea that the president is accountable for the branch. The buck stops with him. And we designed the presidency that way for George Washington. And that's his view of the matter as well. Yeah, I think that there's a focus there on um, executive, you know, the branch, the executive branch, what an executive is and does. And, I, I, and the, the focus is on that rather than on the concept of appointment. And so you could say, well, the, the, the power to remove is implicit in the power to appoint. They, they're symmetrical, so there should be a symmetry in terms of c- congressional uh, approval, but I think that that's not where the focus is. And the reason that I say that is that he makes other appointments. He appoint he appoints judges, you know, he, or he nominates judges at least. Um, and he, he he commissions them. Right. Um, if, if the last act is always unilaterally the president, but, but he can't, can't actually fire them at will because right. they don't work for him. Right, and that's the point that the appointment is symmetrical. He he, it's the same process. He appoints them. The, the Senate has to approve them, but he can't remove them. Okay, and why and can't he remove holism, them? that's holism, Andy. Not, they're not in the executive branch. So that's yeah. why I think the emphasis is on executive rather than appointment. Right, but and I'm saying even more than that, Andy, it's, it's in the end not just words plucked out of dictionaries, mm-hmm. okay? Because governors had executive power, but they didn't have this um, same authority in all the states. In fact, a lot of them didn't even pick their executive um, council. Uh, they, uh, the executive council was foisted on them um, by, by others. Prime ministers do certain things in Britain. Kings do other things. Executive power varies from place to place. This, we're looking at a particular constitution, I'm claiming, designed for a particular person. So on this one, I can deduce it if I want from the text, but it's actually, in the end, a larger set of structural inferences, very strongly supported by the fact that on this one, George Washington is the key authority. And 
Congress supports that, and not everyone in Congress voted for it, you see, and some people had different views, and Jed Sugarman says, oh, well, this person did this, and that person said the other thing. I say, Jed, first, read the statute. The statute actually does not purport to confer this authority, but to recognize it. So that's just how we we do things. We start by reading statutes. Second, if we're going to be counting noses, the biggest nose of all, the nose that knows, is George freaking Washington. I got him who you got. Okay. If we're comparing originalism with kind of a present-based analysis, I should mention that uh, actually in, in the landmark case of the 20th century on the removal power, a case called Myers versus United States, Chief Justice Taft, a former president Chief Justice Taft, absolutely emphasizes the decision of 1789. There's a dissent It's by someone pretty impressive, Louis Brandeis, and he actually says, oh, the Senate actually is allowed to play a role in removals. And, you know, he's an impressive justice, but at the end of the day, he can't be right if if Washington is right. And Washington, from an originalist point of view, understands the executive power better than Brandeis. Now, having said that, here's a way of connecting it to stuff in the headlines today. We mentioned the EPA case. There's a whole debate in that case about whether Congress can, in effect, delegate power to the executive branch. I, in effect, read the Constitution itself as, in effect, delegating certain power to fill in the blanks to George Washington um, himself. Here's how I put it in a book that I wrote um, called um, America's Unwritten Constitution. Even if the precise textualization of every aspect of presidential power had been theoretically possible in 1787-88, Americans were not designing the office in the abstract. Rather, they were tailoring it for its first intended occupant, George Washington. Without Washington at the helm as America's first president, it was widely believed that even a perfectly designed constitutional ship of state might founder at the launch. Conversely, with Washington in charge at the outset, even an imperfect text might work, so long as the text fit the first first man suitably well. Thus, Americans undertextualized the presidency, trusting Washington to make sensible adjustments after wearing his custom-made constitutional uniform and testing it against the elements. This textual openness of Article II, the give, in the garment of executive power was not a design flaw, but a desired feature. True, the official constitutional text did not explicitly delegate authority to George Washington to fill in the blanks of Article Two. I say, but that's actually what makes the most sense of the document. The Constitution's text does not compel this delegation to Washington interpretation, but it permits and even indeed invites this reading for the simple reason that this reading makes sense. It explains the otherwise puzzling and even dangerous looseness of the executive article. If the Constitution is in effect delegating a certain amount of power to George Washington to fill in the blanks and, and win the approval of the other branches, it's not do things just unilaterally, then you might say, well, why can't Congre- Congress delegate certain things to the executive branch as long as they can monitor them and, and change their mind if they think the executive is misbehaving? I, That's I would... the argument for a broad delegation today. There are counter-arguments to that 
I just wanted to show you, oh, this debate is actually relevant to modern issues. It's actually relevant to other modern issues too, Andy, if you want to talk about two or three of them. I do, but I don't want to leave this delegation thing just yet. A couple things. One thing that you just said um, was that the looseness of the text in Article 2 is a delegation, and, or at least it's a factor in recognizing that there is a delegation, that the Constitution is tighter when it needs to be tighter, when it doesn't want to delegate, and it's looser when it's prepared to delegate. And that uh, argument is made by Justice Kagan and her dissent um, in, in an analogous way um, in the West Virginia right. versus EPA. On the other side, Tom Merrill, a very distinguished professor of administrative law at the Columbia Law School, has a piece in the Volk Conspiracy, has a whole series, which he says, yeah, but the structure of the statute actually tends to argue against Kagan's position. And remember, I'm very much into the structure of the Constitution as a whole, holism. And truthfully, I'm not sufficiently expert on the uh, Clean Air Act to actually weigh in heavily on the debate between Tom Merrill on the one side and Elena Kagan on the other. The, our audience might think that I'm strongly opinioned on every, opinionated on everything. It's actually not true. I only have strong opinions on things where I've really, I believe I've done the research, and I haven't on the Clean Water Act case, but I think I have on almost all things constitutional. And, just, uh, and that's fine that you, you, you may not have a definitive answer to whether you find Justice Kagan's arguments persuasive or not, in that particular case, but I still think it's interesting that she's making an analogous argument uh, when it comes to looseness or tightness of, of the wording. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. And then mm-hmm. the second thing, I would just ask you a question um, uh, just before we leave this delegation qu- issue. So you've described uh, the way in which the, the Congress, uh, the, the Constitution delegates in Article 2, uh, or at least implies delegation. Is there uh, Article 1, which covers Congress, is there any uh, sense that uh, that the Constitution provides for uh, delegation in in uh, for Congress? Yeah. So this is not some secret crypto plan to just enhance executive power. These are methods that that work symmetrically. I'm going to talk about some of the broad presidential powers that actually follow from the decision of 1789, stuff that's in the headlines this week in just a minute or two. But yeah, let's take something else in the headlines. Congressional oversight power and congressional contempt power, the the January 6th stuff, the Steve Bannon stuff. Here's what I wrote in America's Unwritten Constitution in another chapter. In a system famous for its detailed enumeration of congressional powers, Congress, in fact, enjoys some remarkable powers that are not clearly enumerated. These powers can easily be read into the Constitution, but only if its text is viewed through the prism of early practice. So again, this idea of early practice, what Madison in the Federalist 37 calls liquidation. It's a big theme of the work of Caleb Nelson, who is being cited again and again by today's Supreme Court because it's interested in this question. Okay, back to my text. Today... Each House of Congress can investigate virtually any subject of legitimate public interest. I wrote this a long time ago, but say January 6th. At times, each House can also act as policeman, prosecutor, judge, jury, and jailer, all in one. For example, each House on its own motion 
can incarcerate an uncooperative witness, whether a public official or a private citizen, to prompt his compliance or punish disobedience that occurred earlier in the session. Each house can also adjudicate and punish other contempts against itself, such as the attempted bribery of its members. Each house has its own enforcement official, known as a sergeant-at-arms, and is free to use its own building as a jail so long as it's in session. So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the Constitution itself doesn't actually say the oversight power, just like it doesn't say the removal power in Article 1, just say the power in Article 2. But there is the oversight power. There is the contempt power. It doesn't say that, but it's there in Article 1. And part of the reason that we know that it's there in Article 1 is not the text, literally understood, not even the 1788 ratification debates, because there wasn't a lot of discussion about this, just as on the removal power there wasn't a lot of discussion, and what discussion there was, Federalist 77, on the removal power actually gets it wrong. But from day one, Congress exercised oversight power and contempt power, and the other branches, including the judiciary and, the exe- and of course, the executive, those are the other branches, um, acquiesced. And so today the power of Congress, each, branch, each house, to have oversight hearings on January 6th or to have contempt of Congress proceedings against the likes of Steve Bannon, all that stuff goes back to 1789, the earliest practices of Congress, just as the earliest practices of the president, the uh, removal power, go back to things that happened in 1789. And by the way, on my view, Ben's getting off easy in a way because he's being actually prosecuted in Article Three courts with juries and all the rest. I'm saying actually the Constitution permits the House of Representatives to throw them in the dungeon on their own, even without a jury and without a judge, under certain parameters and to understand those parameters, we need to understand actually what early Congresses, in fact, did, building on what previous legislatures had done in various states under state constitutions and what Parliament had done. Okay, so we've, we've shown how the decision of 1789 embraces this concept of liquidation, um, that uh, Washington's able to sort of say, oh, well, here's what the Constitution means, um, and it's accepted, and there are other reasons as well that it's accepted. Um, but is that all the significance of the decision of 1789 has for for today? In other words, as a, as originalists, um, we've looked at and we've done an originalist analysis of why the decision of 1789 is correct. But then, if we were going to do an originalist analysis of other things today, we might look at the decision of 1789 as evidence for that as another form of of originalist you know uh data so uh is that itself useful in originalist analysis of things that are going on today let's take two or three case studies and then we'll talk about other things that happened in america early on today the president doesn't have the power for example to eliminate all the members of the Federal Reserve just because he doesn't like them and wants someone else who's going to you know, lower interest rates or pump up the economy or raise interest rates for that matter. So what's up with that? Ah, because the decision of 1789 actually goes to, so far, but maybe no further. It applies to certain kinds of offices, but maybe not other offices. 
oh, what's the difference between the Secretary of the Treasury and the Fed? Well, one difference is the Fed is actually a commission, a multi-member body, and the decision of 1789 was actually about single department heads. The Supreme Court in some modern cases has actually said there's a really important distinction between commissions, independent agencies of a certain sort, and cabinet heads. Now, even when it comes to independent agencies, there is some removal power, but typically it's not removal at will, it's removable for good cause. But here's one key point. The person who makes the decision typically about whether there's good cause, at least initially, is the president and not the Senate or a House member or judges acting on their own. There are important modern cases, one's called Sala Law, another PCAOB, that revolve around just how broadly or narrowly we read the decision of 1789. And one thing that Brett Kavanaugh particularly brought to the Supreme Court was a lot of expertise on this question as a judge on the United States uh, Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, where he actually handled some of these nice, nice, close questions about how narrowly or broadly we understand the decision of 1789. And with these more recent cases of Sela Law and PCOB, we see actually the strength of originalism, but also its limits. My claim is that originalism can help us basically see, get the big idea. And and, and the big idea is that, that the president gets to fire cabinet officers at will. That's what was decided in 1789, and because they answer to him. But the precise boundaries of that idea are going to be somewhat indeterminate. Um, uh, Does the decision of 1789 apply to multi-member commissions? Well, that wasn't so clear in 1789. Oh, but doesn't the logic absolutely apply the same way? Oh, maybe not, because if you've got a corrupt cabinet officer, you're the only one who can sack him. If you've got one corrupt commissioner, you've got other commissioners there who can outvote him and monitor him. So maybe you don't need the same kind of removal power in order to actually have accountability for your branch. Maybe it's enough that you can fire someone for cause on a commission, but you need to have the power to fire someone at will if they're the single head of an agency. Here's one big argument for modern-day commissions. Presidents again and again have signed into law and enthusiastically enforced rules limiting their own removal power when it comes to commissions. If I'm going to appeal to the big idea that George Washington thought that he needed unilateral power to sack a secretary of war that he didn't trust anymore, a secretary of state, if the big idea is Washington thought he needed this power, then we should also factor in that later presidents have actually said, oh, I don't want the power to fire every commissioner at will. I've got other things to do. So originalism will often help us see the big initial issue, but then the the precise boundaries of that, oh, we're going to need doctrinal analysis to pick up where um, originalism leaves off. Originalism will help lay the foundation for a certain area of law, but laid, but all the details and elaborations, that's probably not going to be what originalism is good at. For that, we're going to need doctrine. Let's take a couple of other things that are unilaterally presidentialist 
mainly because we read Article 2 through the prism of George Washington's early actions. Okay, so right now we're focused on Taiwan. Taiwan is not recognized by the United States. They're not a treaty partner of the United States. Well, who made that decision? A president made that decision. President Jimmy Carter, back in the mid-1970s, abrogated a treaty with Taiwan and recognized instead unilaterally the People's Republic of China. And he was building on previous presidents like Richard Nixon that took unilateral action, in Nixon's case, sending a secret envoy to China. Well, where do presidents get that kind of power? You can maybe tease it out of the text. There's the power to receive ambassadors. You can say, oh, well, the power to receive ambassadors also subsumes, and that's in the president, the power to send ambassadors. And that, in turn, subsumes the power to decide which regimes we actually are going to have ambassadorial relations with, which regimes we're going to recognize or not. Okay, you can read the text that way. It's, It's a permissible reading. It's not automatic. I think people in the ratification period didn't clearly understand that. The Federalist Papers tended to downplay this receive ambassadors clause, saying, oh, it's more ceremonial. It's, it's, it's kind of like vice presidents presiding over electoral college counts or something. It's merely a ceremonial thing, nothing else. No, that's what they kind of do say in the Federalist Papers, but that's not our understanding today. Our understanding today, to repeat, is that Nixon could unilaterally send an envoy, Henry Kissinger, to Communist China, and later Jimmy Carter could unilaterally abrogate a treaty with Taiwan, and and that that could happen today in Ukraine or Crimea or Kosovo or Kurdistan, for that matter, that the president have very broad recognition power. There's even a recent case that say, oh, as part of that recognition power, presidents get to decide that they recognize, for example, they alone, no matter what Congress thinks, recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel because that's connected to this power to send and receive ambassadors and more general executive power. Where does all that come from? I think it most plausibly comes from what Washington did at the beginning, filling in the blanks of Article 2. When the French Revolution broke out, he unilaterally decided that we're still going to actually keep our treaties with France, even though Louis is now no longer in, King Louis is no longer in charge, but we're going to recognize the French revolutionaries as the inheriting all the treaty rights and obligations of our treaty with Louis, and we're going to receive this is Washington unilaterally, citizen Genet um, as the representative of the French regime. And structurally, maybe that makes sense because actually things happen in the world, revolutions and the like, and the Senate isn't always in session, the House isn't always in session. There are structural arguments you can make, but the strongest argument, I think, is this is what Washington did, and the country and the other branches acquiesced in it, and that has glossed liquidated, if you will, provisions of Article 2. So we've had a pretty wide-ranging discussion about the decision of 1789 here, but just to connect it, and we've been connecting it to originalism throughout, but as we leave it, Akio, can you just give me maybe a one-minute or just a brief summary of what the originalism method that we used was in doing the analysis of this controversy? We were honest about the ambiguities and the complexities 
but we basically said originalism done right gets the big picture. And the big picture here is Americans vote for a very strong presidency because it's designed for George Washington. He's the one who's going to have to make the system work. He says, I need the ability to monitor the people in my branch and to cut someone off with whom I've lost confidence, especially as to those things with the Constitution above and beyond the vesting clause, which can be read to give me power over underlings when it interacts with other things that the Constitution specifically mentions. It makes me the commander-in-chief, me and me alone. And it puts me in charge of the pardon power and therefore the criminal justice uh, prosecution system. And it puts me in charge of receiving ambassadors and therefore sending ambassadors, and that's the State Department. So these departments answer to me, the heads of departments, we actually didn't mention this in the thing called the Opinions Clause, actually answer to me. And so I have to actually, since I'm going to be held accountable by the American people, this is what they agreed to do, I need to have control over the people who are my assistants. That's my vision. And yeah, the Constitution isn't 100% clear on this, but when Washington gets his vision accepted by the House of Representatives and the Senate in a landmark statute right at the very beginning, that makes it actually a pretty easy case. And then what we finally said is, oh, but the easy case doesn't define itself going forward when it comes to later governmental executive institutions that aren't as closely connected to waging war and prosecuting criminals. Uh, Maybe a different um, arrangement is appropriate, maybe a commission system, and the decision of 1789 doesn't quite answer those questions. So we're going to need additional tools and techniques to take that big originalist idea and carry it forward into the 20th and 21st centuries. Just as a method point of view, if 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 I could summarize what I just heard you say, Um, the big idea was not contained in the words of the Constitution. The big answer was not contained in the text of the Constitution. So therefore, you look deeper at the concept of liquidation um, to see what early practice was, particularly by George Washington, and that Congress accepted it. So that was another form of liquidation. Um, So looking at early practice can be very helpful, even if the text of the Constitution doesn't provide an out-and-out uh, answer. Right, but the text is utterly compatible with this. I'm being honest that I'm not so much merely drawing meaning from the vesting clause, but attributing some meaning to the vesting clause. But it does vest executive power in a president of the United States. And Madison says, gee, if anything is executive, it's monitoring and super supervising and, and sacking, if necessary, um, executive underlings who are executing the law that you, the president, are basically responsible for taking care that these laws be executed. It's, it's, the take care clause, by the way, doesn't say the president shall execute every law. shall take care that actually laws be executed by others, but he's ultimately in charge of the whole thing. And the text doesn't say that perhaps... Um, with unambiguous clarity, there are different ways of reading it, but this is the best way. And we've been honest about the fact that good originalism 
doesn't pretend that it's mathematical and that there are never any ambiguities or close questions. But the point here is that there are tools to help resolve the ambiguities. And one of them is... Yeah. Is, is when it comes... Okay, another way of saying it, when it comes to the executive branch, Washington's your man, pay attention to him. Doesn't mean he's always right, but he's your starting point. What did George do? Okay, so now we're going to move on to our, our next illustrative case or controversy. And in this case, it's another controversy, which is namely the debate over the Bank of the United States. And this one is not quite a separation of powers issue. It's a federalism question. Does the federal government have the power to create a bank, a bank of the United States? Let's begin by acknowledging the word bank doesn't appear in the Constitution. Okay? In addition, acknowledge that some important founders thought that Congress did have the power to create a bank, and others didn't. They didn't all agree, at least at the outset. That said, this is an easy question. Why? Because the Constitution, big picture, was designed to create a government that at a minimum could defend the United States. Common defense is a phrase that appeared three times in the Articles of Confederation. It's in the preamble of the Constitution, and it's also at the beginning of Article 1, Section 8. Article 1 is the first article. It's the longest article. Section 8 is the longest section of the longest article. It's all about the powers of the federal government. Here's how it does begin. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. And that language of common defense and general welfare echoes the preamble. Those are really important purposes to repeat. The phrase common defense appeared three times in the Articles Confederation. Here's the big picture point. Americans vote for a constitution for common defense. A bank, a bank of the United States is very, very useful for common defense when you understand, actually, 18th century warfare. Very, very useful. It's good enough for government work. That's it. So here's how Alexander Hamilton explains it to George Washington. And he is reporting to Washington because he's Washington's underling, just per the decision of 1789. Uh, And the Constitution has a specific provision, actually, about cabinet officers, heads of departments, technically, who report directly to the president. Here's what Hamilton says. Suppose the nation is threatened with a war. Large sums are wanted on a sudden to make the requisite preparations. Taxes are laid for the purpose, but it requires time to obtain the benefit of them. Anticipation is indispensable. If there be a bank, the supply can at once be had. If there be none, loans from individuals must be sought. The progress of these is often too slow for the exigency. In some situations, they're not practicable at all. Frequently, when they are, it's of great consequence to be able to anticipate the product of them by advances from a bank. 
The essentiality of such an institution as an instrument of loans is exemplified at this very moment. An Indian exposition is to be prosecuted. The only fund out of which the money can arise consistently with the public engagements is a tax, which will only begin to be collected in July next. The preparations, however, are instantly to be made. The money must therefore be borrowed. And of whom could it be borrowed if there were no public banks? So he gets it. And Washington gets it. There are two former soldiers who were there at Valley Forge. You understand you've got to get money to the troops on site and on time. Now here's a third person who gets it. John Marshall in 1819 will get it unanimously in McCulloch versus Maryland, uh, for a unanimous court, excuse me, in McCulloch versus Maryland. And you say, oh, he doesn't emphasize national security. He emphasizes the necessary and proper clause. And I say, no, read the opinion. By the way, read the Constitution. The necessary and proper clause could never, on its own, stand alone, be the basis for federal power. Any federal power has to be necessary and proper to something else, to something in the document. Necessary and proper clause isn't a standalone power. It's at most an extension cord, but the extension cord has to be plugged into a power outlet, has to be connected to some something in the document, and the thing in the document is national defense. And that's what John Marshall says in McCulloch versus Maryland. I'll read you the key passage. Um, and this is Originalism 101. Because John Marshall is an originalist. He begins his analysis by admitting very honestly that the word bank and the word corporation don't appear in the document. Quote, among the enumerated powers, we do not find that of establishing a bank or creating a corporation. But, he says, There's no phrase in the instrument which, like the Articles of Confederation, excludes incidental or implied powers, and which requires everything granted shall be expressly and minutely described. And he says even the Tenth Amendment doesn't require that all powers be expressed. Okay, fine. And our audience is saying, gee, I thought originalism was this literalistic, text-based, word-by-word analysis. No, that's not what it is, McCulloch-styled. So what is it McCulloch style? Amar style? Marshall tells us. He says the case should depend on, quote, a fair construction of the whole instrument, unquote. So he is, again, big picture, holistic. Okay, so then how does he apply that analysis? He says, and he he explains sort of why, actually, the structure of the document, the nature of it, the big picture idea requires this kind of big picture interpretation. So what he says is, if the Constitution contained a provision for each and every situation, it would, quote, partake of the prolixity of a legal code and could scarcely be embraced by the human mind. It would probably never be understood by the public. So what he's saying is, the Constitution comes from the public, comes from the people. It's a short document that people voted for. It can't have every little word like bank and corporation. So the the proper analysis is what did the people think they were voted for? And in our previous example, they were voting for a strong executive, George Washington, who would fill in the blanks. 
Now, he's going to actually say, okay, when it comes to, that's separation of powers. When it comes to federalism, he's going to explain the national security angle. Here's one very famous passage. He says, in considering this question, then, we must never forget that it is a constitution we are expounding. Now, lots of people think, oh, he's talking about evolution. It, it lives, it grows. No, he doesn't believe in evolution. He thinks the animals entered the ark two by two. Charles Darwin has not yet written The Origin of the Species. Voyage of the Beagle has not yet taken place. So he's not saying evolution. He's saying the Constitution is and always will be a certain kind of document. It's a document designed for the people that requires attention to the whole instrument. It's not a code, like the tax code. It's not clause. It's not a confederation. It's your technical legal documents. It's a constitution designed for the people. What did the people think they were getting? Here's he tells you what they think they were getting. Although, and here he repeats his concession, among the enumerated powers of government, we do not find the word bank or incorporation. Those are in quotes. We find the great powers to lay and collect taxes, to borrow money, to regulate commerce, to declare and conduct a war, and to raise and support armies and navies. The sword and the purse, all the external relations, and no inconsiderable portion of the industry of the nation are entrusted to its government. Okay, thinking that's the big picture. That's what people think that they're getting. The sword and the purse. Now, how does that all apply to the bank? Here's how. And this is just a few sentences later. Throughout this vast republic, from the San Croix to the Gulf of Mexico, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, revenue is to be collected and expended. Armies are to be marched and supported. The exigencies of the nation may require that treasure raised in the north should be transported to the south, that raised in the east conveyed to the west, or that this order should be reversed. In other words, it's the Hamilton argument. We need a bank. Banks are going to be really helpful in raising money where it is and, and getting it to the troops wherever they are, on site and on time. It's a national security, big picture argument about the sword and the purse. So that's what Hamilton said. That's what convinced Washington. That's actually what John Marshall emphasizes in McCulloch versus Maryland, and he writes not just for himself, but for a unanimous Supreme Court. And five, actually, of the justices on that court were appointed by Madison and Jefferson. I'm going to come to them in just a minute, because they originally thought that a bank was unconstitutional, and they flip-flopped on the issue. And I'm going to explain that just a little bit more, because originalists pay attention to arguments from, from people on, on all sides of the issue and then sift and sort and weigh. One final point before I, I talk about Madison and Jefferson, our audience might think, oh, well, okay, Washington thought a bank was constitutional at the founding and so did Hamilton and, and John Marshall later agreed in 1819 and the Supreme Court unanimously agreed and yeah, five of those justices were put on the court by Presidents Jefferson and Madison Oh, but Andrew Jackson disagreed later on. He vetoed the bank bill, and, and he believed in national security, Shirley Akeel, so how do you deal with that? And I say, well, I deal with that by reading Jackson's veto message, because when you read the message, Jackson does not say 
that a bank is unconstitutional full stop. He says he has some particular objections to this bank. He doesn't think that a bank should be immune from state taxation because that's crony capitalism. It should pay the same taxes that, that state chartered banks pay. He doesn't like the idea that foreigners can invest in the bank. He actually objects to the bank on non-delegation grounds. He thinks Congress has given up too much power, basically, to private investors who can control the bank. Oh, so now we're back to the debate between uh, Elena Kagan and the majority in that environmental protection case. But he doesn't object at all to the concept of a bank. And in fact, he very famously says to Congress in his veto message, gee, you should have asked me in advance, because if you did, I could have come up with a perfectly constitutional plan for a federal bank. Now, back to 1791, because I've given you one side of the analysis, and good originalism takes contrary evidence into account. It is true that James Madison in the first Congress says, oh, the bank is unconstitutional. It's beyond the scope of federal power. And Thomas Jefferson in the first cabinet says the same thing. And so does Edmund Randolph. He's the attorney general in the first cabinet. So, oh, Akil, we're seeing people disagreeing here. Yes, we are. Welcome to honest originalism. Oh, well, then Akil, why do you think actually one side is so clearly right? I think one side is so clearly right because Madison's arguments don't hold up. I give the detailed analysis in my recent book, The Words That Made Us. I'm not going to go through them in, in, in detail here. Just all the reasons why Madison's original arguments don't make sense. But in a nutshell, what I've just tried to explain to you is a bank is genuinely useful for national security. Hamilton understands that. Washington understands that. Marshall understands that, unanimous Supreme Court eventually, and Jackson understands that. So, why is Madison arguing to the contrary? First, in my view, he actually doesn't understand warfare to the same extent that these others do. He wasn't at Valley Forge the way Marshall was and Hamilton was and, and Washington was. He doesn't understand banks. He actually thinks that banks are Ponzi schemes. He doesn't understand the connection between banks and, and warfare. Hamilton understands these things, I'm more willing to defer to him. But also, I need to tell you the political background of James Madison's position. There's a very distinguished anti-originalist, his name is David Strauss, he actually is in print saying, gee, Akil, you know, how can you be so confident that, that Hamilton is right given that Madison took the other view? Okay, if Madison's arguments were really good ones, when he uh, makes them in the House of Representatives, why is it, I ask, that almost all the votes against the bank come from Virginia and Maryland? Because if there's principled states' rights arguments, you should expect them to come from up and down the continent. I think what's really going on, and there's lots of evidence for it, and I can't go into it in great detail in the podcast, but you can see it in the book, is Madison at the time is a representative from Virginia. He has to worry about his base, the bank is very unpopular in Virginia, point one. They don't like banks down in Virginia. But also, Madison understands that if there's a federal bank, it's going to need to be in Philadelphia, which is where the money is. The money men are. And that means the Treasury Department's going to need to be in Philadelphia. And the Treasury Department is 
bigger than all the other departments of the federal uh, government at the founding put together times five. So if the Treasury Department, if the bank's in Philadelphia, the bank's going to be in Philadelphia, perhaps then the entire federal government will need to be in Philadelphia, and that will ruin Madison's plans to have the federal government, the new capital, be located in Virginia on the banks of the Potomac. That's what's going on, and if that's the explanation, all sorts of other things click into place. Madison, later on, as president of the United States, will sign the bank bill into law. But that's when he no longer need, has to worry about Virginia, his base. It's when he pays attention to the national interest. Also, in the meantime, he's allowed the capital to burn to the ground on his watch, in part because he let the bank, the first bank bill, lapse, and he begins to understand as president what he didn't understand at all before, how banks actually help you win wars. He also says, oh, I, James Madison, believe in liquidation. So the early bank established by Washington, um, signed into law by Washington, is a gloss on the original constitutional text that I need to take seriously. Mm -hmm. To repeat, of the five justices who are put on the court by Madison and Jefferson, who early on attacked the bank, all five of them side with John Marshall, its unanimous opinion. Just as an aside, you just mentioned um, that uh, Madison uh, believes in liquidation, ultimately. But this is an example where liquidation is only part of the picture, right? Because you're giving all of these examples where, you know, John Marshall is saying, of course, this is later, but nevertheless, um, Marshall is saying this is the correct interpretation of the Constitution, notwithstanding one way or the other, what Washington Correct. Did. Marshall actually, early on, before all the passage I mentioned, makes kind of two points. One, he says, hey, Hamilton persuaded, basically, George Washington, quote, a mind as pure, as intelligent as this country can boast. So Marshall defers to Washington the same way I do. I'm taking my cue from Marshall. That's one thing that he says. But the rest of his opinion is saying Hamilton was right from day one, even before there was a bank. You know, just a simple point. You look at the Constitution, you see what the big picture is. It's national defense. Bank is useful for national defense. That was true even before Hamilton had prevailed. So he makes originalist arguments. He makes arguments appealing to early authority or the, the important authority, especially of George Washington. And yes, he also makes kind of liquidation arguments of a certain sort. He actually goes out of his way twice to mention that Madison actually changed the stripes on this issue. And he says, oh, that was really embarrassing for Madison to have to admit he was wrong, but he signed the bill into law as president. He changed his mind. Now, just in terms of what we've been talking about in terms of originalism and method, um, I think we should point out that these cases or controversies are picked in part because they're difficult. At some level, you're saying, well, they're easy, they're obvious, but they also can be difficult if you don't take an originalist approach um, in, some, in some sense. Um, so, um, so therefore, uh, for example... Well, we, we pick them in part because these are the big issues early on, and we don't want to hide the fact that on both of these issues, there was disagreement among uh, the founding generation. Now, um, we've gone through a, a couple of the, the method issues here that we, we teed up. It's not just the words, but the big picture. Founders disagree. Judgment is required. How about, you know, does this always uh, have a political agenda? Well, on the first question that we talked about, the decision of 1789, 
Sometimes it actually supports the president on the removal power, but similar issues actually support Congress when it comes to oversight and contempt authority. The presidents that are benefited from the decision of 1789 are going to be Republicans sometimes and Democrats sometimes. Okay. Now, when it comes to the bank, the most important contemporary issue about McCulloch versus Maryland, in my view, was actually the Obamacare case. Because if you really understand what McCulloch was all about, Obamacare becomes an easy case for the liberal side. Now, in the next episode, a future episode, I'm going to maybe talk a little bit more about the tax power, because that was really important early on. And I think Obamacare, the law was a tax law, and that was upheld ultimately as a tax law. But I think Obamacare was easy for a whole bunch of reasons, not just the tax angle. And some of those reasons are basically Hamilton, Washington, Marshall, McCulloch-like reasons. Here's what I wrote about that issue before it reached the Supreme Court. And our audience may have heard, if they've listened to every single podcast episode, they may have heard some of this before, but I'm not sure they've heard all of it. Interstate commerce and national security intertwined at the founding, as Marshall, who had served alongside Washington at Valley Forge, understood in his very bones. Nor was this intertwining limited to the founding era. President Abraham Lincoln's Transcontinental Railroad and President Dwight Eisenhower's interstate highway system both famously promoted national defense and interstate commerce. So by the way, that's kind of intergenerational stuff, and I'm getting in, you know, uh, Lincoln, especially a, a Civil War vision as well. Okay, so back to the text. Lincoln and Eisenhower both famously promoted national defense and interstate commerce. And so does Obamacare. In the 21st century, the next war may well be biological. That is conducted via germ warfare. As the towering constitutional scholar Philip Bobbitt has explained in his magisterial book on terror and consent, the wars for the 21st century, quote, persons enter the U.S. by air every day. The flight time between points of departure and arrival is seldom more than 24 hours. Yet diseases such as plague and smallpox have incubation times ranging from three days to two weeks, respectively. If we are to adjust this vulnerability to biological warfare from the supply side, we must strengthen public health systems, unquote. How does Obamacare help address the issues raised by Bobbitt? Preventative health care enhances herd immunity and therefore makes Americans more secure from threats posed by viruses unleashed by enemies, foreign and domestic, viruses that do not stop at state borders. Obamacare encourages preventative health care by subsidizing care, by ensuring access to those with pre-existing medical conditions, and by requiring individual Americans to arm themselves with health insurance, which will incentivize individuals to get regular checkups, vaccines, and other preventative care. And, by the, and here I made one other additional point, which is actually Washington signed his name to a musket mandate for national security. And I'm saying, oh, if a musket mandate was okay in 1792, why not a vaccine mandate today or, in Obamacare's case, uh, an insurance mandate? In 1792, national defense required individuals to have muskets and powder. Today, national defense requires individuals to have health insurance and vaccines. Or so Congress might properly find 
and it's not the proper role of judges to deny Congress the right to make this call in the name of national security and interstate international commerce. So I'm making McCulloch arguments there. I actually also just sneaked in that point about how Washington, a mind as pure as intelligent as this country can boast, signed a law that mandated people at the founding having muskets. Liberals on the court didn't really hammer the musket point because they're not good at originalism, you see. And sometimes originalism, if done well, will lead to liberal outcomes. Let's take something right now that we're talking about. We're talking about possible bills that Congress might pass, like a bill affirming a federal recognition of same-sex marriages. Well, that's interstate commerce. You see, people go across state lines to Niagara Falls to get married, and this congressional law is going to say, gee, when that happens, the marriage is, is valid. And that's an interstate commerce idea, and it's going to uphold a liberal result. Or Congress is actually thinking about protecting reproductive freedom with a law that will say, oh, people have a right to travel across state lines to get um, abortion services. I'm not making those things up. People travel to get reproductive services. People travel to get married. And, and if you understand broad congressional power when folks are crossing state lines, which was one of the things that's mentioned, you see, in, in McCulloch. The, the army is crossing state lines, and money is crossing state lines, and we got to move money back and forth, and materiel back and forth, and, and the troops back and forth. These are Hamiltonian, Washingtonian, original, um, uh, Marshallian, originalist arguments, and today they argue for Obamacare, for the propriety of a, of a federal law protecting interstate access to abortion services, or interstate marriages. So in summary then, when we look at the, the bank case in the first place, and then in, term, in McCulloch later, and even in, in partially in terms of Jackson, ultimately, um, with his own bank bill, the, the method here, first you look at the text, text doesn't really address it, um, and then you look at the big purposes behind the different clauses in the Constitution, which we've seen the analysis that you have done you know, thoroughly, and you also look at contemporary and early um, leaders and what they had to say. They don't entirely agree, so you kind of, you know, you, you analyze the arguments that they made more closely, both in terms of what we just said and in terms of, of seeing where they're coming from. So Madison as congressman is perhaps not as dispositive as Madison as president. Um, okay, so that's... this and, is, and just, Andy, just a couple of quick concluding points on that. The decision of 1789 is mainly about separation of powers questions, presidential authority, or in the case of congressional oversight and, and contempt power, congressional authority. So that's a separation of powers issue. Now with the uh, bank, we're talking kind of about a federalism question, national power versus state power. We haven't yet talked about rights. When it comes to rights, oh, Madison is going to be a demand. Um, when it comes to First Amendment stuff, when we talk, for example, about the Alien and Sedition Acts, in part because Madison understands the Bill of Rights the way Washington understands executive power and Hamilton understands banks and armies. So that's one point. Different founders may be actually particularly worthy of, of special deference given different areas of expertise. The other thing that I should have mentioned when it comes to Obamacare and when it comes to same-sex marriage, federal recognition of it, which again differentiates liberal originalism my, my, of my sort 
from, say, Scalia's sword. It's not just that I'm more holistic than, than, than is he. I always pay attention to subsequent constitutional amendments, and Obamacare is about health care, which Congress is entitled to believe is a basic human right. And Congress has sweeping power, maybe not at the founding, because at the founding, they were worried about sweeping Congress's congressional power to affirm human rights because they didn't want to admit that Congress could, for example, abolish slavery in the states. But after the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are all about sweeping congressional power to affirm basic human rights. Each of those amendments ends with a sentence, Congress shall have power. Just like these are riffs on the necessary and proper clause. And you could think health care is a basic human right. So in addition to interstate commerce and national security, which are founding themes, Hamiltonian, Marshallian, Washingtonian themes, you've also got reconstruction themes about a basic human right. And so is a right of same-sex marriage. It's a basic equality right. It could also be understood as a, a, an unenumerated privilege and immunity of citizens that Congress can play a particularly important role in defending and protecting under its Civil War Amendment authority. So Amar's version is holistic, yes, but also intergenerational, and that's liberal originalism, paradigmatically. Now, if we look back in, ter in terms of the analysis that you've conducted here at the various critiques of originalism, um, I think you'll, you'll see, audience, that we've address them as, or at least Akil has addressed them, I've been listening, <laughs> as he goes along. Um, so the questions of it's indeterminate, well, you know, <laughs> we came to a determination. Um, it's ideological, I think you've addressed that, um, you know, quite dramatically with what you just said about liberal and conservative originalism, but also, um, you know, you have, uh, for example, Hamilton, you know, who changes his stripes. You have Madison who changes his stripes. So these are people that come around to the right answer, you know, mm -hmm. at some point. Well, yes, it's so interesting. Andy, brilliant, and I hadn't quite focused on it. They move from error to correctness. Madison initially says no to the bank. Then he says yes, that's the right answer. Hamilton originally says no to unilateral executive authority to fire someone. Then he comes around to yes, that's the right answer. Right. And, and, that, and, that's, and that's how good, you know, analysis often works. Your, your first instinct might be incorrect, and then you think about it some more, and you think about it some more, and, and there's more convergence on, on the correct answer later on. Right. And so then, getting back to it, so things don't appear in the Constitution literally as a critique of originalism. And of course, you've said numerous times that's not, you know, a barrier to your form of originalism that you're advocating. Um, and in fact, originalism provides answers in those cases. Um, and that's by looking at the, the purposes, looking at the overall, at this holistic analysis, et cetera. Okay, we said that another critique is that important founders or other notables may disagree. We just went through that. And finally, the founding may have, has tainted roots. Well, that doesn't really apply to the cases that we've been talking about because we haven't been getting into rights and things that are re really reflect that much on on slavery or other original sins, perhaps, of the Constitution, but we'll, we'll get there. But in any case, that's not a critique that really applies to this, uh, these cases. Um, that the project is inattentive to modernity, well, you know, Obamacare, abortion, you know, same-sex marriage, these are fairly uh, modern considerations that uh, 
that our analysis has had an answer for. That doesn't mean that the Constitution will have an answer for everything in modernity, but in these cases, that critique would seem to fall short. Okay, so um, so that's the beginning of a discussion about originalism with these two big issues, the decision of 1789, largely about separation of powers and the presidency in particular, the powers of the president, um, and the debate over the bank of the United States. And I think, of course, these are early cases, so it makes sense to start with them early. But I also note that when you teach constitutional law, Akhil, you start, after you have your students read the Constitution, you then start with McCulloch as a paradigm of how to do constitutional analysis, constitutional law. So that in some ways, McCulloch has special significance for originalists um, as perhaps the original model um, for constitutional law. And candidly, I'm particularly proud of the discussion that I have about McCulloch um, and the bank more generally, and, and Madison's flip-flopping on the bank in the new book, The Words That Made Us. So I've given the audience a little taste of all of that in our discussion today, but if you want more details in particular, if you want to see all the arguments that James Madison makes in the first Congress and why they sound really good at first, and I teach this to my students, you know, but then actually when you think about them, they don't make sense at all. I can't do all of that in this podcast, but I do try to do all that in the new book. And in our next episode, we're going to continue this discussion and we're going to get to some things that you audience might say, where are they? Like, for example, cases. <laughs> so, I mean, we mentioned McCulloch, but we're going to actually get to the most important case of the 18th century. And we're going Which to... Which no one has heard of unless they've read the words that made us, truth be told. If you haven't read the book and you just want to send Andy your nomination for the most important case of the 1790s, we'll um, have it like an informal competition. But if you've read the book, you'll know the answer. It's a case, candidly, Andy, that I couldn't have told you anything about five years ago. And now, you know, I consider myself <laughs> quite the expert on it because I did lots of research in connection with this book. And a little uh, hint that actually has relevance to today as well. Oh, enormous relevance to issues going forward. And another thing that you may say, where is it? Slavery. It's going to appear as well. Yes, it's going to be connected to slavery in interesting ways that most people don't understand. So that, those are a couple of things that will come up in our next uh, episode and lots more. So thank you very much. See you then. Bye.